Late at night while the world sleeps, I battle with a relentless inner voice. It'd keep me up, questioning why I felt like an outsider, why it seemed like I didn't quite fit in. My coping mechanism? Distracting myself with books, TV reruns, video games, and a mountain of potato chips. It was a desperate attempt to escape the nagging thought, what's wrong with me? It's gotten better the older I've gotten, but in those solitary moments, I know I should reach out to share with friends and family, but a paralyzing fear grips me. What if they realize I don't belong? What if their love wavers? So I keep the questions to myself, spiraling deeper and deeper into the abyss of self-doubt. Welcome to Self-Help Junkie, the podcast where we explore the world of personal development through the eyes of book enthusiasts. I'm your host, Erica Ng, a communication coach and your resident bookworm. This season, we'll be focused on developing our romantic skills, but before we dive into the conversation with our guests, let's get a one-minute summary of the book. What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce D. Perry and Oprah Winfrey is a transformative exploration of trauma and healing that challenges conventional perspectives on human suffering. To heal, we must start with understanding trauma. The brain is like a four-tiered cake. The top layer, also known as the cortex, is where all the human stuff happens. Things like thinking, language, creativity, etc. The bottom layer, also known as the brainstem, is like our lizard brain. It regulates our heart, temperature, and breathing. When something happens to us, the information starts with the lizard brain. And it's matched with similar past experiences to inform us how we should react as we move up the layers. The problem is, the lizard brain can can't tell time. So in PTSD, you may logically know that it's been 30 years since you've left a war-torn country, but when that car backfires, your lizard brain takes you right back and triggers that coping mechanism that kept you alive. Once you understand this, you can start shifting from what's wrong with me to what happened to me. Why do I react in certain situations the way I do? The shift in narrative won't be the final step. Your lizard brain does not function on that level, but understanding the mechanics of trauma, the layers of our brain, and how past experiences inform our reactions is the first step towards self-compassion and healing. And with that, let's dive in. So today we have a very special guest. Her name is Julie Hall. She's a therapist who works with students, parents, couples, and families from premarital counseling to divorce or issues like anxiety and depression. She pulls from a variety of therapies to help support her clients in their journey towards healing and wholeness. Welcome to the show, Julie. Oh, thanks, Erica. I'm happy to be here. I was taking a look at your background and it looks like you got your bachelor's and your master's in business and economics. What prompted you to go back for your master's in therapy? Yeah, that's exactly right. I graduated from college and went into business and I worked in all different kinds of sectors like nonprofit and government and uh, corporate and startups. And, um, about 10 years into my work, my partner and I, so we've been married about 16 years, we were starting to try to have a family, to grow our family. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up having a lot of issues um, mm-hmm. with fertility. And we were working with a doctor at the time, a specialist at the time, a reproductive endocrinologist. And I remember, I, lo- I love to tell the story because I think it illustrates it pretty well. But, um, so, you know, we were having a conversation with him about our next steps in the journey and he sort of like slid me a business card Hmm. of, uh, a therapist who works kind of like in his practice on the same floor as him. And he said that, you know, I might benefit from talking with this person. 
And I just remember sort of feeling um, kind of offended, mm. to be honest, <laughs> because I'd already been doing so much work as far right. as just physical. And the way that I was receiving that message was he was saying, hey, something's wrong with me or, right. you know, I'm exhibiting something that's problematic. Mm-hmm. And so that was my initial reaction. Yet there was something within me. I call it sort of like this intuitive place within me mm-hmm. that said, you know what? Let's check this out. And so mm-hmm. I did go and see this therapist. And for me, it was just this incredible experience. Like mm-hmm. I the, I describe it as the floodgates kind of opened. And I was able to really talk about all kinds of things that I had been really carrying and holding that you couldn't see, you know, on the surface. Um, But they were certainly within me, emotions and feelings, um, struggles. And uh, it really was the beginning for me of just this new journey in my own career. I really decided kind of, I mean, certainly there were steps afterward, but I decided from that point that Um, I really wanted to be on the other side with people supporting them in their own journey. And so that was the beginning. And I know not everybody's, you know, therapy experience is wonderful, mm -hmm. you know, at the onset, but for me, it was really, um, it was really impactful. And, and that was over a decade ago. And here, that's really interesting that you went from like, kind of being slightly offended to being like, this is my calling. (laughs) This is what I want to do. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And uh, it, it was, you know, I think it was just really powerful for me to really you know, be supported in that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that everybody kind of has superpowers. Um, and a lot of those superpowers come from our past experience with 10 years of a business background. How do you feel like that those skills have transferred into you being a therapist now? That's a great question. Like I find that a lot of people come to see me because of my background, Mm. like something within my background, you know, is compelling to them because it is relatable that they're Mm. in the, you know, business world. I think for me, um, the business world has really helped me stay, um, organized. Mm. You know, I, I am right brain, but also left brained in that way. And so, you know, I can certainly navigate from that cognitive place as well. Um, you know, rather than just kind of like leading entirely from that emotional component. So I think that's really helped me um, sort of be more well-rounded in this space. Um, And and I just had a lot of, you know, I've been in a lot of different spaces with different groups of people, you know, Mm -hmm. in my career, right? So whether it be at, like I said, startups or government, I've worked with all ages, all backgrounds. And so I think that's really served a purpose in me being able to sit across from people. Right. And being able yeah. to present the information in a way that maybe appeals more to the left brain. I think that's right. I think just being able to kind of communicate in a way that maybe is a little bit more succinct and, yeah. you know, not so touchy feely. <laughs> At least in the beginning, right? Like ease them into it. <laughs> right, exactly. And let's move a little bit into the book. And I think 
uh, earlier on, you touched on a question that this book is trying to tackle, the question of what's wrong with me and instead shifting it to what happened to you. Absolutely. I think the way that I'll talk a little bit about it sort of from my own lens is, you know, as a marriage and family therapist, I'm mm-hmm. trained in a lot of modalities. One of them is emotion-focused therapy, which I'll talk about mm-hmm. maybe in a bit, but um, I also do a lot of family work mm-hmm. with clients and family work I think is so key. And the way that I navigate family work with clients is I spend about two, if not more sessions strictly focused on family of origin. And so what we look at are um, three different generations of families. So mm-hmm. your grandparents' generation, parents' generation, and then your generation. And we're looking at three particular areas of focus. So we're mm-hmm. looking at one, um, relational patterns. So things like how was love given? How was love received? Mm-hmm. Um, what did, um, what were some of the different communication styles, right? What did conflict look like? Like, how did I know when there was sort of like conflict in the family? So that's relational patterns. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing we look at is what's called narratives. Mm -hmm. And by narratives, we mean things like, what are the stories that we tell ourselves about the world around us? And what are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves? Mm -hmm. And those stories don't just like come out of thin air, right? They don't just like fall into our laps, right? Those stories are developed generally by how we're responded to or not responded to Mm -hmm. in our childhood, in our formative years, like zero to 10. Mm -hmm. And so an an example of a narrative or some examples of a narrative could be things like, what do we value, right? What are the things we value? What does success look like? What does failure look like? Who do we consider to be good? Who do we consider to be bad? What do we consider to be good? What do we consider to be bad, right? So that's the second Mm -hmm. area of focus. And then the third area of focus that I look at is trauma. Mm. And there are a lot of different definitions out there of trauma, but the one that I found to be the most sort of poignant and succinct, and they talk about trauma, obviously, and what happened to you, it's anything that happened to us Mm -hmm. that was either too much, too fast, Mm too much, too long, Mm. or not enough too long, Mm. where we did not receive adequate support and resourcing. Mm -hmm. And so we look at these three areas of focus for exactly what you described, right? To help us build a deeper sense of awareness, right? Mm -hmm. A deeper sense of um, connection to ourselves Mm -hmm. so that we can move from that question of what's wrong with me to what happened to me. That in fact, so many of my behaviors, so much of the way that I think and process, they've, it's come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. In fact, my behaviors are often adaptive, right? Right. They've often kept me safe, right? They've preserved my environment or preserved me, right? And so when I have felt unsafe in situations, this is what I have called upon, mm-hmm. right? And so to have that kind of context, I think is really, really helpful for us in developing a practice of Mm self-compassion and self-compassion is like a, it's like a table stakes in my work with clients. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and self-compassion, it's not just speaking kindly to myself. Yes, it is that it's such a deep kind of internal work. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what we know about self-compassion is that it opens up the centers of our brain that tell us we are capable of growth and change. Mm -hmm. So not only is it, again, this kind way of speaking to ourselves, but in fact, if we're practicing it consistently, it accelerates our growth, Mm -hmm. right? So, So anyway, that's a little bit of what it means to move from that question of what's wrong with Mm -hmm. me to what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I think often we're, as humans, we want to relate to others. We want others to understand us and doing this type of work. It sounds like you start understanding yourself and maybe you don't need to seek it from an outside source as heavily if you can do that. I think absolutely. I think the, I think the primary intention is to develop a deeper connection to self. The more rooted I am in my intention, who I am, right? The mm-hmm. more connected I am to my internal world, mm-hmm. I often find that it breeds connection, right? It breeds connection to others, mm-hmm. a deeper connection to others. So with it comes, I think, often just a, a, a deeper understanding that we can develop between people, right? Mm-hmm. Relational, yeah, For relational sure. connection. And you were saying that this is something that you do with family therapy. When it comes to premarital counseling, do you do anything like this as well to dig into what happened to you so that you can understand your partner better? Yeah, you know, in pre in premarital counseling, um, I generally give clients the option of, mm-hmm. you know, doing just some sort of organic talk therapy work where Mm -hmm. we sit down, we talk about different things, or I have an actual assessment that I use Mm -hmm. and the assessment's called prepare and enrich. I don't know if you're familiar. No, I'm not. Okay. Well, prepare and enrich. It's been around for a really long time. And what couples do is each of them takes um, an assessment Mm -hmm. and they take the assessment separately. It's about 30 minutes. It's a whole slew of questions and um, they come back uh, or, or the assessments then come back to me and I get sort of this facilitator report. Mm-hmm. And what's great about this tool is that it hits on, you know, so many different important topic areas, right? Things like, you know, family, things mm-hmm. like finances, things like sex and intimacy, um, mm. uh, like just households movement, right? Social life. And so what's great is so so I think it helps us kind of move from conversations that or topic areas that wouldn't necessarily show up in sort of the organic back and forth mm-hmm. and really helps us kind of drill into those things in a way that kind of makes the process a lot more cohesive. So I do like the prepare and enrich route um, just because I think it covers a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. So does yeah. that assessment look like is it open-ended is it about planning for the future or is it reflective of the past it's all the above Mm -hmm. yeah and so it's not what I will say it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. open-ended in that they're very specific questions that you're asking Mm -hmm. right you and they're that they're asking and you're what they're wanting is you to select a specific response Mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah so each person um, has the same list of questions. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do in Prepare and Enrich is see where people are aligned, like where couples mm-hmm. are aligned and where they're misaligned. Or, you know, I wouldn't say misaligned, but where they're not necessarily aligned just based on the assessment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, where a lot of the meat of the conversation can be. It's like, oh, okay, interesting. Like here, you're super aligned when it comes to sex and intimacy, mm-hmm. but there, you know, is a lot of sort of misalignment when it comes to finances. Let's talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. And we talk about it really gently and, you know, from just a place of full curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I think it's great for couples and they, you know, we find that we have really rich conversation um, based on kind of that framework. Right. And of all the different categories, are there certain topics that you've seen as a pattern that people tend to avoid, like that they might be more misaligned with? Well, I would say, um, I think conflict management Hmm. is a key um, category for Mm -hmm. couples, particularly in premarital. Mm -hmm. There's um, a couple, their names are John and Julie Gottman, Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of work. They've done a lot of work with couples over decades. And one of the things that they say is a real indicator of success in couples is if you can fight well, Mm. if you can fight well. And what does fighting well look like? Is it like you're both equally loud? You're (laughs) taking notes to like (laughs) debate one another? Right. I think fighting well is, you know, coming into the conversation, Mm -hmm. knowing that your partner is well-intended, right? And that you are well-intended right? Coming into the conversation from a place of curiosity, Mm -hmm. from a place of wanting to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the intention that it is your responsibility to Mm -hmm. communicate in a way which your partner may understand. Mm -hmm. So when we come with that kind of um, uh, grounding or framework, it really makes for a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we're we're using um, statements like I I feel right or I need mm-hmm. or, you know, we're coming to the table from a place of compassion, of, of care for the other person. It's a very different conversation than you always do this. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I always say when I work with couples, one of the things that is most important is recognizing my side of the street. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about characteristics and relationship that are, you know, um, foundational things like love, respect, all of those are incredibly important, but I, I really do believe that sort of the underdog, as far as like the, the, the core characteristic is humility. Mm -hmm. Like if I can show up in my relationship with a kind of humility it's a game changer, right? It's a, it's a game changer in, you know, this, this place of understanding the other person. So it doesn't mean we don't have ruptures, Mm -hmm. but often if we're practicing this kind of like fighting well, Mm -hmm. then um, we repair a lot, much fast, a lot more fast, Mm -hmm. right. A lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And this might relate to the emotional regulation, but when it comes to things like conflict, obviously tensions are high, emotions are high. And like you said earlier with family origin and how we relate to one another, even when we're calm and we have the best intentions to be practicing these things of being humble and being able to listen, a lot of these other things tend to come up. 
So of course, like, how do you guide people through that if they have different ways of conflict and like, it's completely opposite to what the other person is used to? Absolutely. (laughs) It's such a great question. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about emotion focused therapy because Mm -hmm. I think this really relates to emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. So um, emotion-focused therapy is a type of modality that I utilize with, um, well, certainly with individuals, but I think if, I find it to be particularly effective with couples. Mm-hmm. And I'll describe it really in the framework of a hierarchy. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, emotion-focused therapy really starts with understanding our triggers, mm-hmm. right? The things that activate us. And we've heard the term trigger, but I would say an emotion-focused therapy, a trigger is really anything that happens outside of me that sends a message from my brain to like my nervous system to my body that tells Mm -hmm. me I'm under some kind of threat. Mm -hmm. I'm under some kind of threat. And generally it's a threat to one or more of three things, a threat to our feelings of safety, Mm -hmm. a threat to our feelings of love and, or a threat to our feelings of belonging. Mm-hmm. So anytime I feel a threat to one or more of those three things, and again, it could be real or it could be perceived. And oftentimes it's perceived, mm-hmm. right? A threat to my feelings of safety, love, or belonging, right? My body goes into its threat response behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so threat response behavior, you've heard of fight or flight, right? Right. Fight can look like I get defensive. Mm-hmm. I rage. I get retaliatory. I get defensive. I, you know, I um, withdraw to punish. Right. Right. Um, flight can look like I shut down. I withdraw. I mm-hmm. hide. I go away. Then there's a uh, phrase where I just like go numb. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, then there's fawning, which is like, Hey, whatever you, whatever you want, I'll do whatever mm-hmm. you want. Right. It's like the people pleasing kind of thing. Um, then certainly there's escapism, right. Mm-hmm. Numbing out with substances with, well, you know, other relationships, um, competing attachments, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. so, and I'm really careful not to shame any of these threat response behaviors, because again, they have been developed. Mm-hmm. by us and maybe modeled for us in our childhood to preserve us, right? Mm-hmm. To protect, to preserve, and to preserve our environment. But what we know about those threat response behaviors is that they're not sustainably effective, mm-hmm. right? What they generally do is they keep us disconnected from ourselves mm-hmm. and they keep us disconnected from the people that we love. Mm-hmm. So we have our triggers Then we have our threat response behaviors. And then underneath the threat response behavior is our threat. And so if you could imagine just experiencing some kind of trigger, maybe it's like someone's tone of voice. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's something that someone says, right? It's as if in that moment, somebody put a t-shirt on me, Mm -hmm. okay? And the t-shirt says something like, I am blank. Mm -hmm. And the I am statements generally sound something like this. I am alone. Mm -hmm. I am rejected. Mm-hmm. I am unworthy. I am unworthy of love. I am not good enough. Mm-hmm. I am a failure. Right? Like these are not pretty stories. Mm-hmm. Right? They're not pretty stories, which is why the body says, yeah, let's not talk about those really vulnerable things. Let's just do our threat response behavior because we know that'll work right. and we know that'll protect us. Right? Right? And yet, 
that pain story doesn't just go away, mm-hmm. right? It will manifest, you know, in other ways, whether it be in anxious feelings and depressive symptoms, right? In our sleep and yeah. mood, et cetera. So what we try to do in this emotion focused therapy modality is we try to help couples identify their own triggers, Mm -hmm. right? Their own threat response behaviors and what are really the primary pain stories Mm -hmm. that are activated for them when they experience a trigger. Because Mm -hmm. what I generally believe is that we don't have like 15 different pain stories within us. We've got like two or three Mm -hmm. that are the Mm -hmm. primary pain stories that we carry. And they didn't just start Like they didn't just show up when we got married or when we had children, those pain stories have an origin and they generally have, there's some childhood wounding there. Mm -hmm. And so, but what we find is that because the couple relationship is the most proximate, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Our partners have the highest capacity to activate Mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. woundings. Right. And so while we're operating from this place, as in I'm mad at you, no, I'm mad at you. And right. And so we're now putting on our armor. Mm -hmm. What's really happening is something different. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, A a more vulnerable conversation that we're trying to access because like it it can be um, like a cycle can develop. And so what I mean by that is let's say I'm in a couple relationship and Um, something that my partner does or says activates me. And so I get really angry, Mm -hmm. right? And when I'm getting really angry, it activates something in my partner and their threat response move is they start to move away from me, Mm -hmm. right? But the more they move away, the more it maybe activates a story in me that's telling me I'm alone. And Mm -hmm. so I'm going to fight even harder, Mm -hmm. right? I'm just going to, you know, go go harder on you. But the harder I go, on my partner, maybe the, my partner starts to feel more criticized Mm -hmm. and the story that's getting activated for my partner is they're failing. Mm. They're a failure. And the more that story gets activated, the more they pull away, Mm -hmm. the more they pull away, the more I'm doubling down on my threat response move. The more I double down on my threat response move, the more they're doubling down on their pulling away. So before we know it, we're like this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in the therapeutic space, we start, we try to tap into what are those pain stories. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to really be that container for each partner when they're sharing something vulnerable, right? Responding in a way that's compassionate, modeling it for the partner who's witnessing mm-hmm. um, so that they start to get the message that maybe they can't actually talk about the pain story that's being activated in the moment. And the more they get the message, that message, the less the body feels like it needs to hold so tightly to this threat response behavior. Right. And the more that I can put down this threat response behavior, this armor, Mm -hmm. the more it gives way for me to show up authentically Mm -hmm. in my relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a practice, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tender kind of work with couples, but Mm -hmm. it it can be really, really powerful. 
Right. For people who maybe don't have access to premarital counseling and wonderful therapists like yourself, is there (laughs) anything that they can implement to at least start practicing that on their, in their own relationships? Yeah. I mean, there's so much content available, right? Mm -hmm. Like through books, you know, I think probably the books that you recommend on your podcast, podcasts Mm -hmm. like yours, (laughs) there's a really great book called, um, hold me tight. Mm. It's written by the author's name is Sue Johnson. And uh, she talks a lot about this kind of therapeutic practice where we notice that like it starts to become this dance right? between couples, right? And it's a dangerous dance, right? Mm. And as far as, you know, how it can tear at our, you know, our um, intimacy mm-hmm. and connection, Um, So again, you know, I think there are a lot of resources out there, you know, that are available. But one thing that came to mind when you were describing the putting on a t-shirt that said whatever your pain story was, I could imagine if you're having a conversation and you're starting to realize each other's pain stories and the stories that you're telling yourself in your head during the conversation, recognizing that and when you see your partner's defensive mechanisms coming in, being like, oh, that's when they feel like they don't belong anymore. And if you have the conversation of like, how can I make you feel belonged? If it's a verbal affirmation, or if it's like holding your hand while having the argument, if you have that kind of plan ahead of time, it might help in the moment. That's so good. I think that's so good. You know, the other thing that comes to mind for me are things like journaling right? Like Mm. just a a journaling practice can be really helpful for Mm -hmm. anybody Mm -hmm. to start to just develop a deeper connection to their own feelings, right? Mm -hmm. To start naming their emotional experiences. But I, you know, I, I always like to share this example of my own relationship. So again, I was sharing my husband and I, we've been together for a long time and we've done some of this work. And Mm. I remember this conflict that was happening between us. I can't even remember what activated (laughs) it, but I just remember I was upset and Mm -hmm. my move is often the fight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't necessarily rage, but I'll get upset and I'll raise my voice. I will get, you know, kind of, you know, I'll get in that kind of fight mode. Mm -hmm. And my partner did this really powerful thing where in the middle of that fight, he said something like, I know that that I know that when you, um, like, you know, when you get upset like this, it's often because you're scared of something, like mm-hmm. you're scared about something. Mm-hmm. Like, is that what's going on here? Is there something mm-hmm. that you're scared about that we can talk through? And that was like a record scratch moment for me. Right. Just it entirely disarmed my, you know, my fight right. and, I, it really gave me an opportunity to pause mm-hmm. and it really shifted us into an entirely different mm-hmm. conversation, a conversation that was softer. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I, it's not always the partner's responsibility. I think we can certainly practice our own self-regulation as far as, Hey, like I need a timeout. Like, let me mm-hmm. just check in with well, what's really going on with me. Right. But what I always say is it just takes one person to elevate. Right. It just takes one person in the dyad to elevate for that negative interaction cycle to become something that's Mm -hmm. more positive, that's Mm -hmm. more productive, that's more effective. Yeah. 
Right. And I think that kind of mirrors the question shifting in the book, right? Instead of being like, what the heck's wrong with you? To being like, okay, what happened to you to make this trigger come up? Exactly. Exactly. What's happened, right? What's actually going on? What is underneath, right? What's the more vulnerable experience here that is really worthy of being seen and honored and talked Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what about starting those conversations? It sounds like you and your husband have, I'm imagining when you went for your master's, a lot of these things came up so you could have these conversations regularly. Are these things that you still do? And I mean, you're also a mom. Are are these things that you talk to your kids about? Yeah. You know, I would say for me culturally, you know, I'm, I mean, I was born and raised in New Jersey, but my family's Indian American, right. You know, my, um, so I grew up in the Indian culture and mm-hmm. the Indian culture just historically has mm-hmm. um, been pretty, just generally pretty left brain. There isn't a lot of talk about emotions, mm-hmm. feelings are not particularly valued or affirmed or, you know, honored and seen. And everybody has their good reasons for that. I think particularly when you're stepping in to this country from an immigrant culture, you're working really hard Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of sort of survival mode. Mm -hmm. And so to talk about perhaps feelings and emotions, maybe um, the idea was that it would be a detriment, Mm -hmm. right? It would maybe keep us from the things that we're trying to, um, you know, move toward or, Mm -hmm. you know, people are just in survival mode. So whatever the case, I think for me, you know, that to, identify my emotional experience was not something that was affirmed in my family. And so I really had to recognize for myself and my own journey that in fact, not only is it, is it um, worthy of being seen, but it in fact can be a strength, Mm. right? It can be a strength to be able to tap into my own emotional experience to, um, recognize that, you know, when I have a handle on, when I can acknowledge what's happening for me emotionally, then those emotions don't manage me. I now Mm. have the tools to manage those emotions. And we all have emotions. We (laughs) all have emotions, right? right? You know, and if we're not acknowledging them again, they will come out sideways. Mm -hmm. They will come out in other ways. right? Right. You know, and so I think the more that we can acknowledge that both the cognitive, right? And, you know, the thinking brain is just as important and powerful and strong and worthy as the feeling brain. Then we start to move from a place of wisdom. Right. And so, you know, I think in my relationship, um, I've, yeah, like you said, I've been able to put that into practice. My partner, you know, thankfully is entirely on board and he's, you know, loved that work not just for our relationship, but for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a daughter who's 10 now and she's, you know, she's, I think very emotionally astute. You know, we right. had this discussion I thought was hilarious where she's a gymnast. She loves mm-hmm. gymnastics and she's a competitive gymnast. And there was another sport that she was also participating in that she just felt like, you know, I just don't have time for it anymore. And I was a little bit kind of bummed out because I thought right. that other sport was really, she was great at it. I thought it was really, you know, 
a good environment for her. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was like, are you sure? You know, do you really think? And she's like, mom, I just don't really feel like I'm being heard right now. <laughs> she's dead. Right. Okay. All but right. That you must know? be so reassuring to be like, my daughter knows that she can speak her mind and yeah. have these tools that neither of us growing up would have had. That's right. It is. Right. It is absolutely reassuring. <laughs> Before I like shake it off and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes, it is. You know, I just right. I really want that for her. I want mm-hmm. her to know that, you know, her emotions, while they aren't necessarily fact, that they're mm-hmm. informative, right? Mm-hmm. And they're communicating something to her that is worthy of being acknowledged. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you so much for being on. It's a real pleasure having you. I loved uh, listening and learning. Um, if people are looking for you, where can they find you? Um, so the easiest place to find me is just on my website. It's juliehalltherapy.com. And mm-hmm. there's a little box there. You can talk to me and, mm-hmm. you know, and you can also email me at juliehalltherapy at gmail.com. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to connect with anybody. Perfect. I'll make sure to link those down below. So it's super easy. Thank you again so much for being on here. Of course, Erica. Thanks for having me. You take care. Thanks for listening to this episode and the ones that came before it. The podcast has hit over 1,500 listens as of recording this right now, and I am thrilled to have reached so many people. Of course, if you like the show, please rate. And if you have a topic that you want me to find an expert on, send it over to Self Help Junkie Pod on Instagram or Gmail. I have a few more planned out, one on long distance relationships that you may have had to relate to during the pandemic. That's it for today. See you guys next time.